Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Revelation chapter 21. We're only going to go through eight verses this morning. And the last time the message was titled, The Final Judgment, which it's a reality. You know, God gives us history in advance. He tells us things he wants us to know. He tells us things to warn us not to go down the wrong path, which is good. You know, God wants to see all of his creation, all of his children in heaven with him. Any good parent would. Um, however, he gives us things that are a sobering reality, but also things that are very encouraging. Today's the encouraging part, which I'm, I enjoy teaching pastors mostly, I believe, enjoy teaching the encouraging part, but we do have to give both parts of it because it is what it is. So, uh, final judgment was last Sunday, if you didn't get it. And this morning it's going to be transition and renewal. Transition and renewal. I should have added parallels there because there's some pretty neat parallels to help us understand why God is doing what he's doing and why he does the certain things he does in the future. Um, Now, this is important because when we talk about heaven, right, a lot of people have an idea of heaven. And a lot of the ideas are based, oddly enough, on Renaissance art. You know, the cute little prepubescent chubby little angels with the little wings and everybody's floating around in a cloud. I got to be honest with you. I'm a doer. Um, Hanging around in a cloud for all of eternity is not my idea of a good time. Um, God doesn't have to entertain me, but that I actually studied the culture and I don't want to go into all the reasons why I believe the culture infected the ideas of heaven and eternity. Eternity is going to be an awesome place. You know, people think, oh, when I It's just going to be heaven, and I don't know what I'm going to do there. And people have these crazy ideas that it's it's more fun in hell. You get to party, and heaven's boring, and boy, that could be further from the truth. So um, we're going to look at how the bodies change to be able to navigate this new world, this new Jerusalem, this new creation of heaven, um, the new heavens, the new earth and how we move and how we uh, live eternally in these new bodies, um, all the things that we have to do. So uh, it's going to be very exciting. And, you know, it's God. You know, it's not like we're going to go to heaven or the new creation is going to be there and we're going to say, oh, God, you left something out. You forgot this. Oh, thank you. I, I, I slipped my mind. I'm getting older in years. You know, it doesn't happen like that. He knows everything. So I believe that once we get through this, and we're going to go through this in three parts, that we're going to have a much greater understanding of future things. So you ready for this? All right. Verse 1, it says, And I saw, this is the Apostle John, a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. Now, that's interesting because people have these ideas about multiple creations, and God made a mistake, and he had to create another one. Well, it tells you right here that there was a first. There was an initial uh, creation, 
and of course it was marred by sin. So, and we're still in that situation. And it's, this dirt is actually quite beautiful, but it's very troubled. The tectonic plates, you know, all the things that happen because of tectonic activity, um, the atmosphere, the degradation of the creation. Uh, so there's a lot of things that, you know, the, was it the yellow, yellow, yellow dwarf, the sun, yellow giant, something, one of those things. So the sun's, it's, not, it's definitely not a baby. It's, it's on its way out. Don't know when it would actually cause. It doesn't even have to burn out, but it has to stop giving us the energy we need, the radiant energy, the photosynthesis, and all that stuff. So people think, oh, we have to wait before the sun burns out before we can consider going to another solar system. You hear all this talk, but there is a sweet spot where the sun ages out, and it stops, it stops giving us what we need, and the earth starts to die as a result of it. It's very fun studying you know, cosmology and science and all that kind of stuff. So, um, so you, you see these things going on. So logic tells us that this isn't going to last forever. So he said, if the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, also there was no more sea. Now, this is going to be one out of three. And the first block that we're going to cover is the new heaven and new earth created. So let's look at the order. Uh, in Genesis, everything was created perfect tropical environment you know and and again i i don't want to digress too much because it's going to be a very long sermon but you know when they found the woolly mammoth and they found they initially thought well he he had to be shielded from the the cold and he had this long hair but his hair was very um frizzy and it 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 appeared that it could have also provided when it was dry they found these things frozen in ice and they thawed them out and it was wet but when it was dry, it was sort of almost could be like a barrier, an insulative barrier. Men in the Middle East and women wear layers, certain type of clothing. And we say, that's crazy. They should be in tank tops. No, they're insulating themselves from the radiant heat of the sun. So the idea initially before the fall was that in Genesis, the world was so perfect. There's actually less water on the globe. And there was a, a hydrosphere. If you read Genesis, you read about the waters above that came down. And we're not talking about stuff from the sky. We're not talking about cumulus or cirrus or any of the cloud that could build up this uh, water intensity and then just shower and, and cover mountains. That's ridiculous. There was much more to it. There was what we consider when we study the science of, of creation is a hydrosphere that would cause when the sun would, would, its radiant energy would come in, it would be like a greenhouse effect. It would hit the earth and it would bounce to this hydrosphere and just like a greenhouse. And it would heat everything uniformly. So hence the woolly mammoth with frizzy hair. Um, how do you find the woolly mammoth frozen solid with uh, food still in his gut? It doesn't happen through the natural process. Something happened very quickly. So I submit to you that the world was so beautiful and so perfect before the fall. So I, I'm building a case here. Sin marred everything, of course. Um, then we move fast forward thousands of years, right, through human history to a near future where the millennial kingdom takes place. And you start to see when the Lord comes and rules from Jerusalem, you start to see a reversal in some of these awful processes. Even in, in Noah's day, when uh, the, the family got off the boat, God told them that, the, that animals would have a natural fear and it would really probably uh, protect them from human beings who would try to trap them and, you know, abuse them in some respects. 
Uh, so you see a lot of changes because of sin, but then you see some reversals in the millennial kingdom. So the animal kingdom changes. There's more of an affinity towards humans. There's no prey-predator structure anymore. Um, it's, it's so, so cool when you read the scripture. To this new heaven and earth. Remember, the millennial kingdom is, is transitioning the earth in, in this state, but making some incredible changes. And then God just redoes everything. So you, you ask the question, why? And the answer is transition. Transition, transition, transition. Okay? The, the new heavens. In the Greek word is oranos, which uh, is commensurate to the Hebrew in Genesis, expanse. Okay, so you look at a expanse in, in the Hebrew and the oranos in the Greek. We understand when we read the Bible, which was in many ways written in Greek, uh, the Koine Greek, that the oranos were layers of the atmosphere. And this is fascinating too. So when you read the scripture, you hear of three of the oranos. So the first one is... I'm breathing. You're breathing. This is our first Oranos, right? We're in the general atmosphere where there's an oxygen, nitrogen. There's a mixture in the air that you breathe in and, um, you know, you need the oxygen. And the atmosphere does different things. There's something called the Kármán line. So if you were to stand here and have rocket boots and turn them on and shoot, go up to, don't hit the ceiling. You would have to go all the way to the the sky. And just before you hit outer space, scientists call it the Kármán line. So there's there's an idea of, and it changes based on the way the atmosphere starts to break down and outer space starts. So the Uranus goes from the first to the second. And the second from the Kármán line is everything in outer space. Okay? Um, The third Uranus does not have to be changed. That's God's dimension. And again, I have friends that go that read about dimensions, and, and I love science. I still follow it. Um, I gravitate to it whenever I can. But the, um, they say, you know, there's different dimensions, and there's wormholes, and there's things that can bend time. And, it, you know, you can, your brain could explode studying all these things. Well, I submit to you where God dwells is his dimension. It's an oranos. It's something we're not familiar with, but it, he could be right here, literally on top of us, watching everything, and he is omnipresent, and we wouldn't know it because he inhabits a different dimension. Pretty cool stuff, isn't it? Who says the Bible isn't scientific? You know, the apostle Paul says, he speaks about himself in the third person, that he was taken to the third oranos, the third heaven. And he saw things that were unexplainable. And then after his vision, he comes back and he writes down basically as best he could explaining what he saw in God's domain, in his dimension. And the Apostle John sees the same thing. So it's pretty exciting. And I'm, I'm building a case here. <laughs> Where does this come from, Pastor Joe? I've read the Bible cursory, rudimentary, and I haven't seen these things. You've got to read the whole thing and read it slowly. <laughs> Isaiah 65 speaks a lot about the new heavens and the new earth. Psalm 102, both of those in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Matthew 19, 28, when Jesus speaks about the regeneration that encompasses all things. And also 2 Peter 3, which talks about how the the elements, I believe it's the stoichia, stoichiometry is uh, is a science that we have today based on that word. 
the stoichia, you know, the elements will melt with fervent heat. And we understand that as a, as a, a fission reaction in, in nuclear understanding. So it says things that the first century people wouldn't get, but we get. We understand now what he was saying all those years ago with the science that we have. So that's just, and I could go on, that's just four places, two in the old, two in the new, that speak about this new heavens and new earth that God's going to do. This, this stuff is really exciting. Um, what do you think the question I get all the time, let's put a little levity in this, is when people read this, what do you think the question that I get almost all the time? Pastor Joe, do you mean there's no more beach? <laughs> what do you mean there's no more sea? There's no more beach? I had a question. No more humpback whales and sharks, you know? We don't know that to be true yet, but we do know that the topography of the present earth changes after the fall and after the, uh, the, the diluvian period, the whole topography changes. And that's when the actually lifespan of people and animals starts to decrease, right? We see a huge decrease after Noah's family comes off the ark because when they opened that door, and there was dry land, everything looked, started to look very different than it was in the pre-Diluvian earth. So all this, Pastor Joe, where did all that science come from? It's in the scripture. You just got to look for it. So neat stuff, uh, but let me get back to the, let me go, let me go with the conjecture. 70% of the earth's surface is covered by water. Most of it is ocean. Um, it does appear that you know, and again, the old, there's some theories, Pangea, where, you know, you can take the, the continents and you can actually see it when you look at a globe. You can kind of fit them together, that they were closer and there was more land. Well, I would say as a student of the Bible, I would agree with that theory. There's a lot of theories. I don't agree with evolution, but I, I, I agree with a Pangea type theory because the Bible tells us that there was more land. And we also know when we study anthropology that, um, that the Bering Straits and, you know, the, between um, Russia and Alaska, there was more land and people were able to cross more readily. Now there's a lot more water that separates those two regions. So you can see the difference in the indigenous peoples that came here. Um, when you look at Asia and you look at uh, eastern Russia, the Russian territory, that's a fascinating thing, anthropology. Exciting, exciting stuff. Uh, so I don't, you know, listen, we hear a lot about water. We're going to read about water today. We're going to read about water in the next uh, few sermons. So I, I believe that, remember, God has to put all the people who ever got saved from the beginning of time on the planet. Okay? Um, okay, just, I'll just say this again. There was a, a study that was done, and I actually said, no way, and I took out my, cal my calculator and I found out that the guy was right. And this was, I don't know, 10 or so years ago, maybe 15. And he said, if you take, people say the earth is crowded. That's a perception. He said, if you take the surface of the earth and you take every single person and just do it quickly, 8 billion, right? Uh, multiply that by two square feet. So if every single person for five minutes, it would probably be very uncomfortable. And we all stood like this, shoulder to shoulder, chest to back, right? that you could take 8 billion people, giving them only two square feet, and fit them in the city of Jacksonville, Florida, and the rest of the world would be empty. It sounds ridiculous, and that's what I said. And I took out my calculator, and I did acreage, and I did, and I'm like, man, that's a good calculation. That makes perfect sense. Now, who would want to live like that? But the point is that 
the Earth's not overcrowded. It's a perception to reduce the population, and it's a very secular humanist ideology. Um, so God decides, he decides to, I, I would say that there was not, there's no, not no more water. So there's water, but there's no more sea. What is the sweet spot with what he's going to do? We don't know. Are there going to be local beaches? Are there going to be salt baths? I, I have no idea but it's going to be cool. And I would say that it doesn't mean there's no more waterways, but it means that the vastness isn't there anymore. So just keep that in mind for those, for those of you beach lovers. They probably won't ever get in melanoma anymore either in the new situation. <laughs> but this is the last state which takes us into eternity. It can't be corrupted. And I believe that, that this, the process isn't going to start all over again. We won't be able to sin. This is perfection. It's going to stay that way, and we're going to read about that as well. Verse 2, and this tangentially ties into what I just said. So then I saw John, then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men or mankind, And he will dwell with them, meaning God will dwell with his people. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. They also means us, folks. This is a future occurrence, just so you know. John is... You know, you have to you have to look at context when you look at first person, second person, third person, singular, plural, all that kind of stuff. 1900 years ago, John's looking into the future, which is still our future, but probably a lot closer than it was for John. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. So two out of three intimacy, intimacy with God restored. But we also see a sub-theme of the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven, and we're going to cover that. So he sees something very unusual. He sees, because John was used to, and we're used to, you only see a floating cities on Star Wars or some type of, you know, uh, one of those type of fantasy shows. We haven't figured out how to do a real floating city. I mean, I know there's space stations and stuff, but it's, this is something that's pretty fantastic. So he sees this, and he sees it coming out of heaven, coming to earth. Does it orbit? We're going to talk about that in detail next time. I'm going to table that. But what happens today, even in 2021? We travel to cities, and they're fixed. They don't move. So John sees something, even in his day, that was pretty outrageous, pretty amazing. Now, John uses a cultural truth that still applies 2,000 years ago. It's so beautiful. It's so, and we're going to cover the details of this city next time. It's so gorgeous. It, it has well-defined borders and, and a size. It's kind of cubicle, and it seems like you could move in three, di- three dimensions instead of two, and we're going to cover that. Um, and the only way he can explain it is when a bride... Now, a lot of our culture has changed in 2,000 years, but a lot of it hasn't. And I can tell you that I've done a lot of weddings, especially for young people, <laughs> somebody here, and uh, I can tell you that when the bride and the groom agree that she is, he is not going to see her dress until she comes through those double doors over there, and she comes through those double doors, and she's walking down that aisle, and some of these guys break down. I mean, it's a good thing. 
tears, uh, overcome with emotion to see their, and he sees her every day. He's been dating her. There's something about that presentation when they're going to tie the knot. And John, some cultural truths are so powerful they can last millennia. So I'm just going to say that. There's been plenty of times I've put my arms around a guy and this is great, isn't this great? You know, make sure he doesn't pass out. But uh, <laughs> i got to hold it together, you know. Um, but it's good. So this is what John sees. Okay, we'll move on. <laughs> so how do we apply this to the city application? Now remember, God's presence is key here, right? Let's look at these transitions again. So sin separated humankind from God. It, it happened. And God has always been trying to woo his children back. You know, people ask these questions. Well, why doesn't God? Why? If I showed you all the instances how God tries to get our attention, you'd be like, yeah, you're right. You know, um, God's presence is, is so important. Uh, and this happened in earthly Jerusalem. Uh, the atonement for sin. This was all his manifestations. People could come to Jerusalem. They could travel. They could see the priests and their officiation of, of the atonement for the sins of, of the people. Pretty amazing stuff. Uh, the priests and the Levites and their garb, the miraculous divine manifestations. Right? But unfortunately, as everything else on the planet that tries to start good, human beings corrupt because human beings are sinful. There is good news here. In addition to that was the earthly Jerusalem system uh, was always being attacked or secretly trying to be corrupted by the Babylonian system of the world until it's destroyed. And we read that in Revelation 18. That's a good chapter to read. So this new Jerusalem will never be able to be corrupted. And he can see some things about this city that he knows intuitively, but he doesn't know um, knowledge-wise yet. Now, let's look at also the triunity, right? The triune nature, uh, nature of God is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. When you can look at the human being, he kind of put his stamp, that triune stamp, of course, little t, he's got big T, on us, a trichotomous nature, we're spirit, we're mind, we're body. But you can see this triune um, parallel in the new creation of the, the new heavens, the new earth and the new Jerusalem, that's where it's going to be at. And I can almost say that it's almost like a playground for saints, you know, for the redeemed. We're just going to have a great time. Um, so verse three, let me read this again, because this is powerful. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, behold, this is so important. And let me just, if I could take the NIV or the NLT, let me just try to paraphrase it. Behold, where God lives will be with, with people. Yes, right next to people. He will live with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be close to them, and he will be their God. Black and white uh, on a page, it's hard to totally fathom, but um, I can tell you that I read this at, I'm going to say probably almost every funeral, because here I am, and people are grieving because sin and death, and not necessarily the bereaved or the deceased, excuse me, but of, of the culture has caused us not only to be separated from God, but we also die. And God did warn the first federal head parents that this would happen, but they did it anyway. Um, so we, we lose that intimacy when we have to attend a funeral. But that intimacy now becomes restored. You know, those of the redeemed are brought back. Um, I mean, if they died recently, they're already with the Lord. 
Um, they receive their new spiritual bodies, as we do at 1 Corinthians 15, and uh, the community is reestablished again without a blip. So that's an encouraging scripture. And I want those that are struggling emotionally to know that there is a future hope. You know, as the Apostle Paul says, we don't, we're not like the world. When somebody passes or there's a tragedy, we don't walk around like there's no hope because we know we have hope in Christ. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. That's amazing statement. Jesus says in me, there's going to be resurrection. People are going to come back. That's exciting. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to meet relatives. Um, I know some of my relatives were saved, but I don't know my great, 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 great grandfather, grand. I don't know who they are. I don't have pictures. My family didn't do a good job of genealogy, but I'm going to meet some people in my family line that, that got saved. And I never got the chance to get to know anything about them. So this tabernacle of God or this, this, this dwelling of God is with the human race, no distance, no separation. Um, but it's, it's intimacy, right? And I can tell you that if you're a Christian and you have blips and you have valleys, you're normal. Just so you know, I'm just letting you know that in some places you go, the preaching is so dramatic that you, they, you always have to maintain a high and that's not reality. If you look at the Psalmist, look at David, David had a heart after God, but usually through his own doing, he would uh, cry out in his Psalms. We sing his Psalms. We sometimes pray his Psalms. We study his Psalms. You know, he, he felt that separation from God. And here was somebody that the Bible said was close to God. So folks, we're going to have those times too. I feel it sometimes. And I don't understand. Am I, did I do something wrong? Is it, you know, is this a test? Like I just, I go through all the things in my head and I just pray to God anyway, because I know he hears everything that I say, even when I'm upset and frustrated. So we feel, we, it's, I guess you could say it's palpable, the separation at times, but God is, is with us. He's there, but this is an extra layer of closeness, closeness. And what's the transition there? Remember, in Genesis, God walked with humans in the beautiful Edenic uh, conditions, in the Garden of Eden, in the cool of the day, to after sin. And people say, oh, God turned his back on them. No, he didn't. Because if you remember the story, after sin, Adam and Eve hid from the Lord. And God calls out, Adam, where are you now? It isn't like God couldn't see through the fig leaves and the, you know, the trees and, oh, I got to get a landscaper in here. I can't find Adam and Eve. That's not, you know, when, when, when God speaks things in the scripture, the, you, there's a reflection of uh, sometimes the emotion of the concern that he has. He knows as soon as they, they rebelled and they sinned against him, he instantly knew he felt that loss. So what does he do? God actually goes out into the garden and asks Adam where he is. And he wanted to give Adam a chance to respond. That's pretty powerful stuff, isn't it? God is always, the parable of the prodigal son is a picture of, of God, always scanning the horizon, looking for the wayward ones to come back. His arms are always open. So I just want to encourage you with that. We hear a lot of garbage on TV, even the History Channel. Where do they get some of these so-called theologians from? They just say wacky stuff, you know? So I tell you what, if it was up to us to get right with God, 
That would be a really bad thing because it would never happen. We'd have all these conditions for God. So he walks with them in the cool of the garden, the cool of the day in the garden, to where, where are you, Adam? And this is God's transition to get us to come back to him. Let's watch this. Let's walk through this. First of all, God says, you know, I'm going to have my physical manifestation and presence. Well, first we saw in the tabernacle, right? The, the cloud and the, the fire and like the whole camp of the Israelites could see, wow. It wasn't just a little campfire. Trust me, it was, it was dramatic. Everybody could see it. Then when they built the temple, God inhabited the temple, right? His presence, his Shekinah glory was in the temple and people could come and just stand there and watch and pray while these things happened. So we're, we're moving closer. Then what does God do? God, the son takes the form of a man. So God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, you know, when the, Jesus was in the boat, that was those, those were close quarters, those boats, you know, these fishermen weren't rich. They, they leaned on Jesus. They, they touched him. They hugged him. They broke bread with him. He healed relatives of theirs. Um, was it Peter's mother-in-law? You know, so, so God comes now in the flesh. Do you see how each time we move to a different transition of time, how he's getting closer and closer to us? Then what happens is, oh, no, Jesus is he's ascending into heaven. But what does he do? He leaves us the Holy Spirit. He seals us with a part of, of God. How does that happen? I have no idea. But I can tell you I've experienced it. Um, but we can also grieve the Holy Spirit. We could go our way and suppress his counsel and his encouragement and, and move towards the, what the world is, is, is providing, that carrot, you know, that temptation. Then we move from, from that to the millennial kingdom where... You know, we complain sometimes as Christians, and rightly so, especially with politics. These people are ungodly. Look at the things they're doing. Well, now we're moving to the millennial kingdom where Christ is ruling in Jerusalem, and those ungodly things aren't going to happen anymore. Talk about executive orders. He's going to strike a lot of these things down from both parties. Amen to that. Um, and then we're going to move to this. We have no idea how close we're going to be to God pretty impressive. So again, for the redeemed, when we get our new spiritual bodies, we won't be able to sin. That's going to make it even more close, you know, more intimate with God. And, and again, I can preach a sermon and I can read on, on a page and I'm, I'm not going to do it justice. How close can you get to God? And it should be like a, you know, take your guess. I, I don't know. I don't know what it looks like. I don't know what it feels like, but I know it's going to be awesome. And God just keeps trying to tell us how this is going to happen, right? I, I will say that even when, when, we, when we don't sin anymore, remember what sin does, it also distorts our view as God, of God as Christians. When we go down the wrong path and we get into things we shouldn't, even as Christians, God still loves us. He still died for us. He still, we're still going to go to heaven, but our sin can corrupt our thinking about our Father in heaven. Think about that. So when that's wiped away on our end, oh, now it all makes, I can't believe I used to think that. So I will tell you that um, I, I feel in this world, especially in this area, especially in 2021, I can sense the hardness that people have. 
I was a, a road police officer for 25 years. I had a love-hate relationship with the road. I think I like the adrenaline part of it. But, um, you know, I saw a lot of death. And then I, I become a pastor, and I bury friends. I bury young people. I bury people that I still miss today, and I can't wait to see them in heaven. And I believe I've developed a callousness. Sometimes I have to bounce this off of my wife to see, how callous am I? She goes, no, you still have feelings. I'm like, that's a good thing. <laughs> I mean, I'm able to counsel with first responders, military guys coming back from seeing combat because they can bounce anything off of me, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be there for them. But I, I can't wait for the day that I can just be like a child again. You know, I do remember being a child and just the innocence that we have when we're like children. And when we become adults over time, we, we develop those, that, those walls and those barriers. You know, I can't wait to the time where I'm not so hypervigilant and guarded. And as much as I try to get rid of some of it, most of it, I've definitely, God has definitely done a work in me. But there's still, this, this is what I'm looking forward to, folks. I'm looking forward to resting in him and possibly in his arms. I can totally dig that. Verse 4, he says, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. It gets better. <laughs> there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. So in this dispensation, the following things are a thing of the past. Crying. Whoa. And this is so cool because I love to go into the Greek and the Hebrew. And people may say, just like, though, there's no more ocean. Um, so what are you saying? Like, we don't cry tears of joy, we're robots? No. When you look at the Greek word for crying, it's a paroxysmal, it's a big word, paroxysmal type of violent retching from trauma and pain. And I've seen a lot of that over the years. And you can just be silent and be there for that person. But in his kingdom, this stuff doesn't exist anymore. It's gone. Why is it gone? Because the horrible feelings are gone too. Death, sorrow, pain. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take liberties here, and I'm going to throw my conjecture in here. That's what's also gone. I'm going to throw this in because some of you suffer with some of these things. Anxiety. Anxiety is a horrible thing. I remember going through that. Depression, fear, PTSD, painful memories, all gone like that. Impressive, isn't it? And people say, well... And again, because we, we, we limit God in our understanding. Well, how's God going to do that? Well, when you go to a surgeon and he says the scan shows a tumor, but it has well-defined borders. So I'm going to go in there. I'm not going to hurt any of the good tissue, but I'm going to extricate that tumor and pluck it out and let the good tissue go back to where it is so you can heal. That's a good surgeon. God, somehow, he's the great physician. He's also the great surgeon. He's going to go in to us and let us be who we are. Let us have that joy, excitement, childlikeness, reasoning ability. But he's going to extricate like a tumor. He's going to pull all the bad things out of there, out of every single one of us like that. Things that don't belong there. Because you know why? There's no more sin. So these things don't happen anymore. That's pretty incredible stuff. 
Again, I can tell you what's going to happen. If you ask me exactly how it's going to happen, I'm not going to have all the answers for you. I can only tell you what the scripture says. So once the sin is removed, I believe that God retroactively removes any of the pain from the sin. And this is what we can encourage our culture with. Amen? We got problems in the United States. We're going to get to that too. But, you know... Listen, when you're, when you're struggling and you're suffering, just somebody to come around you, to hand you a tissue, to put their arm around you, that's so comforting. God is going to be there to do that. You know, this happens on a regular basis at our church. You know, um, we never know what's going to happen after church. Who's going to come up? And sometimes I can see it in a person's eyes, right? Like Jesus said, the eyes are the lamp of the body. Your eyes say so many things. And you know it's coming. They've got something to say. They wait for everybody else to leave and they break down. People can't, be, people can't help but be blessed by this type of message. Not because of me, but because of the words. You know, when I want to encourage somebody, I try to find the right scripture to encourage them. And it's all over this book. The problem is there's too much to choose from. You know, I'm like, what would be the best one for this situation? So... I'm going to say this as well. For all the technology and advances we have in the United States, and I love my country. I'm a patriot. But for all that we have, all the money, all the possibilities, all the technology, all the biotechnology, all the great minds, we have a mental health crisis in the United States. Having stuff doesn't guarantee fulfillment. It doesn't guarantee happiness. It doesn't guarantee contentment. These things can only be provided by the Lord himself. You know, whether I, I deal with first responders, right? Um, and again, rise in suicidal ideations, military, now our kids, the elderly. Almost every demographic is being hit by this. And a lot of people don't want to talk about it. You know why? Because it would admit that we don't know how to fix our own society with all that we have. Amen? You know, um, if you've lived in a house for more than 5, 10, 20 years, my wife and I moved a few years ago. <clears throat> you buy something, you think, I'm going to use this every day. It ends up in a black bag in the basement. <laughs> and I say to my wife, we've got to go through some of these black bags. Because I don't know what's in here, <laughs> you know. So you get, a, you get a new car and it's clean and it smells nice. And after a few weeks, you've already stained the carpet. Me, I, I throw my stuff on the floor and eventually I, I scoop it up. And these, these are my habits, okay. Um, but new things and, and stuff and money and whatever, you could accumulate. Now they're talking about um, hyperinflation again with all the crazy money printing that our government is doing. That means what you have in the bank, it, this isn't good news. It's just going to be worth less. The dollar is going to be worth less. Oh, I finally amassed $10,000 as a cushion. Well, after they're done spending money like crazy, it'll probably be worth about $4,000. So, like, what can, you really, what can you really hold on to in this world? Nothing. Nothing. Right? It's got to be, the focus has to be God, no matter what we do. Verse 5, last, last three verses. 
No, I can't count. Last four verses. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. So John was being guided. And um, I would imagine it was uh, an, an angel, I believe, that was guiding him through these visions. And there were times where the angel said, get your quill out, (laughs) start writing, because this is important. You know, you better put that in the book of Revelation. So funny. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake, which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And we covered that um, last Sunday, but I'm going to go through this. It's not what you think for some. So three out of three is all things are made new. And again, why does he have to make everything new? Because... You ever get, uh, we have a very old, very rusty pickup truck, and I keep trying to fix the rust spots, and I keep trying to fix things that break. Eventually, I got to get rid of that truck. It's just, it's falling apart. I can't put certain things in the bed anymore. There's, there's holes. So there's just some things that y- you just got to start all over again. And sin has done such a brutal job with this earth. Well, he's God. He could do anything. I also, again, my conjecture, I also believe that there's a lot of bad memories here, a lot of poverty, a lot of disease, a lot of famine, and God's just going to make it all new. It's going to be unrecognizable, and you won't remember those things. So again, I throw my conjecture in why he does what he does, but eventually we'll see. Um, God, he's, he, you know, he's the Alpha and the Omega. Jesus said, God the Son said, I'm the, amount, the Alpha and the Omega, which means the beginning and the end. Um, So you see the equality in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The fountains of the water of life. John 4.14, when Jesus was talking to a woman who all she wanted to do in the heat of the day was get fresh water from her well. Um, It was so important to her. Jesus actually starts to have a conversation. She doesn't know God yet. And uh, he keeps trying to direct her towards spiritual things. So he says in John 4, 14, the water I shall give. He's contrasting this metaphor of spiritual water with what she was drawing. The water that I shall give will become fountains of living water springing up into eternal life. And this is a picture of satisfaction. You know, uh, we, today listen, I got, I can't do a sermon without one of these or two of these. I'm a double fister, right? I need the... I need my water because I, I get dry, and we all get dry. A water is one of those things that you can't go that long without, without starting to feel some bad physical effects and then eventually death. So he, and now just imagine back in the day when they didn't have these types of things they can carry around with them. Water was even more precious. So God uses in the scripture water as a spiritual metaphor a lot to say, listen, as that H2O will keep you going, until you need it again and again and again, you know, I'm here to provide for you a satisfaction emotionally and spiritually that no other can provide. Only he has access to these, these wells and these fountains of living water. Pretty impressive stuff. Okay. Um, he who overcomes shall inherit all things, right? Now, when we're overcomers, and, and we're going to get into a section where are we spiritually overcoming 
or are we overcoming or being overcome and infected by sin? It's kind of like that continuum. There, I, no, any Christian who tells you they don't sin is lying to you. Any pulpit that says we don't sin is lying to you. We are still sinners. However, the overcoming in the sense that through Christ, you, your life changes. It doesn't become perfect, but you start to look back and almost see yourself 10 years ago, 20 years, as that's a different person. I can't believe that was me. Look at what God's done in my life. And if you don't see it, other people will see it. Even if you go through a blip or a valley, you know, God can pull you up out of that valley and he can do amazing things with you. So this, this overcoming, today we have labels in society. In some cultures, you're part of a caste system. You're born into a family and that's all you are. You can never rise from the lower caste or the worker caste. And it's very sad. But um, I'm, actually the Dalits in India um, are from the lower caste and they are coming to Christ like crazy, like millions, because they know that even if the government keeps them in this position, that Christ has called them to be overcomers and that when they're with him, they're not going to be there anymore. There's no caste system in heaven. Labels, you know, uh, usually in high school and stuff, you know, you hear the word loser, which is a sad label. Um, you know, you, you can hear all these negative things all you want, but in Christ, you're none of those things. Um, somebody, even victim, you know, you're always going to be a victim. You're always going to, that's not true. Don't listen to these people. Or even, you know, uh, you're always going to be an addict. No, you're a new creature in Christ. God could do amazing things. You know, I had a serious problem with alcohol for many years and I never think of myself as an addict. Um, I don't even even think of alcohol. I don't care. I'm just too busy. You know, God has redirected my attention. And he also, you can also rewire the brain when you pull away from it under neuroplasticity. It's actually quite fascinating. So the Bible had all these concepts, even scientific concepts before they were understood. Okay. Verse eight, the group that's not going to make it. So the question is, who are they? Why don't they make it? And what if I do some of those things? So let's look at context. Remember, in the millennial kingdom, which is a future occurrence, people get to see the righteous rule. And Christ is always showing these people, trying to win these newer generations in the millennial kingdom to him so that they would be saved. Sadly, some chose not to. Um, and that's, that's unfortunate. And there's just a point in time where the door is closed we see these in the parables of the ten virgins. The five were smart, the, the five were foolish, and once the door closes on the wedding banquet, the five foolish ones couldn't get in. So there is a point, a fixed point in time. I don't know when it is. As of last second, it wasn't, because we would know, um, that whatever state you're in, you're solidified in it. You can't change it, but it's not yet. So I would say if you want to come to Christ, come to Christ at the end of the service. Don't wait. <laughs> well, maybe I should do this and maybe wait a little. That was me. I'm glad that God was patient with me because he didn't have to be. So let's look at this. Um, the cowardly. Uh, so God punishes people that are, are afraid. No. When you look at the word to the cowardly is the person that, and you see it today, that they allow other influences to keep them from God. Oh, they could be, they could hear a sermon, they could desire the things of God, 
and they have family, they have a religion, they have a peer group that peer pressure causes them to not come to the Lord. And that's unfortunate. Listen, if it's your family, if it's your religion, your peer group, your friends, if they're really your friends, they would want what's best for you. So the cowardly, they allow through pressure and other things not to come to Christ because of other circumstances that are ungodly. And it's, it's, it's a, you know, it's a will for, they want to fit in. And, and that's tough. I remember being in high school and college and stuff. It's, it's a tough thing. Even as a, in law enforcement, I got saved in law enforcement. That wasn't easy. <laughs> that wasn't easy at all. Uh, but I had to say, you know what? I have to take a stand at some point. B, the unbelieving. And I have a friend uh, I used to work with. He's on Facebook. He's probably listening. I love you. I do love you. I want you to come to Christ. And he always baits me into these debates about God. And I say, all right, brother, here are the ground rules. I answer your question. And then when I'm getting too close to your heart, you, you quickly divert to another subject. He does this all the time. So he, he did it recently. I'm like, listen, I don't have time for, to play. I said, but I'm going to give you the answer. Just don't do that to me. So I give him the answer. Sure enough, he moves to another subject, right? Let's, why does God, why this? I'm answering it for you, but you're not even responding. You're moving to another subject. That's disingenuous. So the, those, the unbelieving is somebody, not that, oh, I didn't know. I didn't hear about Jesus. That's not who it's referring to. It's a willful disbelief. Did you ever talk to somebody and you have facts like medical facts or legal facts. And because of their leanings, they don't like what you say. You show them a video, you show them the truth, and they still argue with you. That's called willful disbelief. There are people today, especially in our culture, where everybody has to think the same thing, that it's willful disbelief. They want to stay deceived. It's sad. And, you know, I was part of a religion and part of me didn't want to make the transition. And I made excuses too. Listen, I made all the mistakes everybody made, but eventually I came to the Lord, right? And that's what God wants us to do. Hopefully for some it's today. Uh, C, the abominable, the murderers, the sexually immoral. I kind of put these together because, and I'll, I'll try to be as sensitive as possible, this recent shooting in Atlanta, you know, the media does not want, and our culture, they don't understand spiritual things. So they have to put their own facts together, but they can't say there's a spiritual issue here because it doesn't fit their narrative. And, and quite frankly, they're out of their element. They don't know anything about spirituality. So this guy is so tragic, these victims um, with the shooting. I'm going to listen to the investigators over the media. Parents threw him out of the house porn addiction, terrible sexual addictions. They, they had to throw their own son out of the house. He had a roommate, same thing. He told them, uh, neighbors, this kid's in trouble. Um, and I can tell you that from counseling on the rare occasions I've counseled men who had a porn addiction, it does rewire the brain. It's almost, it's, I'm just going to say it, it's the same chemicals that if you shoot heroin or something like that. Um, and the, especially with young men who have a high testosterone anyway, the, the ability for them to have a normal relationship with a woman is almost impossible if they don't get help because it's, they don't understand the subtleties. They don't understand the relationship. It's all 
it's the brain firing at them, telling them what to do. Now, I hope they throw the book at him. He should have fixed himself instead of shot innocent people. But this is a part of, of our culture that our culture wants to, wants to um, willfully disbelieve. Because it's, we, we export pornography to the billions of dollars. Um, the things that happen in this country are disgusting. We have lawmakers who have, in some DA uh, regions, have decriminalized things like child molestation and, um, you know, adults who are pushing this thing. They want to lower the age of an adult so they could be with younger and younger, what I would call children. So we live in a sick, sick, sick world. Did I say sick enough times? You know, you have performers singing, women and men, about their genitals. And they get awards for these songs, doing disgusting things that you have to turn off the TV or you can't have your kid in the same room. We have a culture that's filled with sexual perversion. So when he talks about these things... And in this case, this one person in Atlanta was abominable, he was a murderer, and he was sexually immoral. All three of those things. Um, and it's sad. Sorcerers and idolaters. Let me put those two together. Let me translate sorcery for you. You think it's somebody with a half-moon cap and they're throwing out enchantments and stuff? It's sort of part of it, but that's not the main part of it. It's a, a form of the Greek word pharmakia, pharmacy. Sorcery, translation, druggists, poisoners. You ever see how many lawsuits there are with these drug companies? Billions and billions of dollars, especially the uh, uh, opioid. <laughs> I get the opioid and opiate confused. Them. It's opioid. Um, they knew through their studies and their research that people would get addicted. But, you know, they put money aside in case something bad happens and it exploded some 10, 10, maybe 15 years ago. It really exploded. Uh, so they're being sued. You know, these companies that put out, they want everybody on all these pills. And some people need pills. You need di you know, diabetic drugs and all kinds of things that you need. But um, they want us on everything. If you go to a doctor's office and their mug has one drug company and their calendar says another drug company and, and there's a poster with another drug company, you probably want to get a second opinion. Because they're probably going to give you something from one of the mug, the calendar, or the poster. You know what I'm saying? But this is, this is our culture. You know, I put some, a, a meme on my Facebook about why our culture is doomed. And it was this very interesting thing about how we're addicted to technology. We're addicted to pills. We're addicted to the easy way out. And I don't attack people who have been overcome. I attack people who can fix it and don't fix it. Business as usual. They debate the dumbest things in Congress, but these important things are left undone. And they are perpetuating these things. So sorcery um, leads to idolatry. So I'll put on my law enforcement hat. I remember this one guy, I'll make this quick. <laughs> he just was just causing all kinds of problems in one of the hotels, fighting, and we really didn't want to bring him in. And he just then was fighting with us, and we had to bring him in. And he was overcome. He was on something. And we sent him to the hospital to detox. And the next day, I went to the hospital to serve his papers. And he goes, oh, hello, officer. Are you here for me? I'm like, am I in the right room? 
you were punching me. And, you know, and uh, he goes, did I give you guys a hard time? It was the sweetest guy I ever met. But the, the, what he was on changed. It altered his mind. You know, there's a, a, a psychological and a spiritual effect that these things have on people. And now, you know, again, there's more laws in New Jersey that I don't want to get into the politics, but they just make it easier and easier for younger and younger people to get involved and um, to get hooked on this stuff. And it's sad. You know, who's looking out for the little ones? You know, these are our leaders. They're supposed to do it. Um, and then liars. Um, people lie. Um, they make a lifestyle of lying. Um, you know, Dr. Keith Abloh is a psychiatrist. 20 years ago, he wrote a lot of articles about the rise of narcissism in our culture. You know, especially with social media and other things, he goes, we're developing a nation of narcissists. You know, everybody wants to be the king and queen of their own little world instead of working together. Uh, borderline personality disorder, I've dealt with <clears throat> a little less, less than a handful of people like that. Those people are very dangerous. If you disagree with them in the least bit, they will savage you. They'll come after you. You know, they will try to ruin your life. Even Munchausen's and some that have a, a victim uh, complex, they're liars. They do things, you know, the, go, the rise of the GoFundMes, you know, oh, we're helping the veteran. And, uh, and then you turn out they, they bought themselves a brand new, brand new BMW apartment and all this kind of stuff. Um, it's sad because our culture is flooded with this type of behavior. Now, I lied a lot before I became a Christian. I'm just telling you this. You know, what if I do these? Um, and I had to learn to, to walk in the light. I had to learn to be in the truth. Uh, do I ever fib? Yeah, I do. You know, my wife says, how is my, my wife is an awesome cook. She wants to hear 10 stars. Sometimes I'll say 9.9 .9, and she gives me this look. I'm like, it's 10. But she, she is, she knows she's watching. She is an awesome, awesome cook, but I can't deviate a little bit. So it's a little white lie. Um, where till I get home? <laughs> she's like, make your own dinner. <laughs> no, we, we, my wife and I, we use humor to break up the monotony of life sometimes. So uh, there's a scale, folks. You know, oh, I, I, um, I saw this person and I, I lusted after them. I'm not making it into the kingdom. It's not what it's saying. It's not what it's saying. You know, um, so just take it in its context. You know, these people... They, they live in this. They're overcome by it. They don't want to change. They don't want to try. Um, sometimes people are comfortable in dysfunction. Amen? So, but I would just say this. If you have any concerns and you don't know the Lord, come up today. Come up and receive Jesus Christ today. So transition and, and renewal. Once we get into this age, whatever side you're on, you're solidified and no turning back. However, on March 21st, 2021, which is today, there's still an opportunity to turn to Christ because the Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe on him would not perish, but have eternal life. So that means you, you soever, whatever you did, it does, whatever you're into. Well, I don't know if I could break this. I don't know if I could come up, and I hear people say this. I don't know if I could come up, receive Jesus. I don't know if this week, this month, or even this year, I'm going to be able to break this. Okay, well, let the Lord help you out. Don't, why, would you, why would you not come to salvation because you have to clean up first? I'm glad I didn't have to clean up first. I was still messy, and I was messy for many years. So, you know, God, that's the beauty of Jesus. There's no strings attached. He says, just come. 
I did all the hard work. You know, if we think that we have to be great in order to come to him, then his work on the cross was kind of, it was a little window dressing. No, he did, he spilled his blood. He, all the sins of the world were put on him. So I want to encourage you, come aboard now. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfields. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.